All right. Well, as we get started to, today, I have a question for you. And so if, if I was to ask you, what question are you most often asked when you meet people, you know, what would that be? Um, for some people, it might be kind of a tough question. Um, but for me, it's a very clear question. Or it's a very clear answer. Uh, I get asked this particular question. I, I've been asked this particular question hundreds of times by now. Although it's asked a lot less frequently, um, I was asked again just a couple of days ago, so it kind of brought it to my mind. Well, as you know, my last name is Sears, and so when I meet people, the question that they almost always ask is, any relation? Um, <laughs> and, and obviously you know that that is because Sears is that very well-known, iconic brand name and one of the most well-known retail brands for almost 120 years. So growing up, kids would actually call me Roebuck or Montgomery Ward or J.C. Penney. Um, and I realize I might be aging myself with some of those. But naturally, I've always been interested in the history of the company Sears. So it's, it's interesting, it was actually started by a railway station agent named Richard Sears in Minneapolis in 1886. And it started all when he purchased a shipment of watches that had been refused by a local jewelry store and began to sell them to the other station agents and family friends and so on. But that actually worked so well that he decided to make it into a business. And so after just a few months, he quit his job at the railway and began selling these watches full time. In a year, um, he decided that Minneapolis wasn't the best place to do that, and so he actually moved down to Chicago, where he opened uh, the, started doing that again. Um, and while he was in Chicago, he was joined by another man who was a watchmaker named Alva Roebuck. And so, and in 1893, the two of them formed a partnership and officially named their company Sears Roebuck and Company. So. They very quickly expanded their product offerings and developed a mail-order catalog business, as you well know. And that catalog was so successful, even there in the beginning, that just after about six years, the catalog had grown to be over 500 pages. And it continued to grow, offering a huge variety of products, which included clothing, fishing gear, bicycles, furniture, musical instruments, and even my favorite, firearms. That's right, uh, you could actually order a Colt 45 from Sears in 1916 for $22. Um, I wish it was like that still. In 1906, the company was taken public, which led to further expansion, as you can well imagine. Well, one of the most interesting things that they decided to do, in my opinion, was they began to offer prefabricated houses. So you could buy through their catalog, you could buy prefabricated houses. And, and those houses are actually so well built that many of them are still around today, even though the last delivery occurred somewhere around 1940. Um, so it's kind of an interesting history through all of that. But 
as more and more people begin moving out of rural areas and into the cities, Sears realized that there was a need for physical stores in addition to their catalog business. So in 1925, the first Sears store opened in Chicago. And the company continued adding stores all around the country. And then the combined business ultimately led Sears to become the largest retail company in the world by a long shot, uh, by a long distance from everyone else. By 1970, Sears employed over 350,000 people. Did you know also that Sears founded Allstate Insurance? They also founded Discover Card, uh, and there's, of course, many iconic brands that are associated with them, Kenmore, Craftsman, Die Hard Batteries, and, and others. So, unfortunately, in the 1980s, that hugely successful company began to experience some serious headwinds. Uh, upstarts like Walmart, Target, and Kmart all which were more focused on budget and lower prices, those began to grow in popularity, in particular due to the pressures of high inflations in the 1970s and early 80s, and those companies began to eat into Sears' sales. And in 1991, Walmart eclipsed Sears as America's largest retailer. Struggling to keep up with the competition and remain profitable, Sears made what many believe to be a colossal mistake in 1993 when they ended their catalog business. 1994, guess what started? Amazon.com. And Amazon.com ultimately became one of the final nails that led to the ultimate demise of Sears. So ultimately, Sears was acquired by Kmart in, in 2004, and then in 2011, declared bankruptcy. So what happened? How did this household, one-time household retail giant, really the Amazon of the 20th century, how did it fail? And that's a complicated answer, and there's a number of factors. But one of the things that I was thinking through that is it failed ultimately because of poor decisions, mistakes, mismanagement, and some other, other things. But it just led me to think through the fact that really all around us, we have people, nations, technologies, and environments all change over time. And when change was needed, Sears failed to appropriately respond in the right and best way. Of course, Sears is just one account in a long history of failures of nations, governments, companies, militaries, banks, and even individuals. History is littered with cases where that which was once great failed. We even have a phrase, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Well, if there was ever a situation where someone was handed literally everything that they needed to take something that was already great and keep it going, it was Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Solomon was so prolifically wealthy that we're told in 1 Kings chapter 10 that silver was as common as rocks in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of rocks in Jerusalem. So Rehoboam had also benefited from receiving the direct teaching of the wisest man who ever lived apart from Christ himself. 
So Rehoboam had access to Solomon's advisors, those men who had been with him and watched him and been trained by Solomon. He had access through the prophets and the scriptures to seek direction from the Lord. And as we'll see today, Rehoboam is going to make a serious mistake that ends up costing him a significant portion of the kingdom. And yet, while the sin and mistakes were entirely of his own foolishness and choices, nevertheless, God was behind it all to accomplish his perfect purposes. And that comes out very clearly in the text that we'll look at. So as we approach this study in the Old Testament, I, I want to think through it, and we'll probably be doing this to some extent every week as we look at these different lessons. Um, but looking at First and Second Samuel, which we covered a couple of years ago, and then First and Second Kings, those are the story of Israel's monarchy. And so the united monarchy, beginning with Saul and then ultimately ending with the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in 586, that's the story that's covered in those four books. So these books of Samuel and Kings are, it's important, I think, to understand that they're not just a collection of short stories. It's also not an academic history book. There are purposes to it. God has a number of purposes as in providing us with these accounts. So accordingly, I want to look at the story today and as we move forward over the next several, uh, over the next year, I want to look at it from several different perspectives. So first off, there's the historical account and the historical context. Uh, this includes the actual facts of the story as well as how it fits into the larger context of history and the ramifications. There's also a connection to the flow of redemptive history that we'll see in many of these. And, and so the question is, how does this passage fit into the flow of redemptive history? We're not going to touch on that too much today specifically, but I, I think you can see it as we go through. There's also some personal application that we'll have the opportunity to think through. And this is where we can see the examples that are there in Scripture. Some of them are good examples, things that we should try to emulate. And some of them are bad examples and things that we should try to avoid. But all of it are, is given to us to help us today. There's also theological truths that are going to come out through these passages. So what are the theological truths? What are the things about God that we can see in these passages that these passages teach and underscore? And this passage today has some very interesting things to think through in that regard. So what I'm planning to do today is I want to work our way through the historical account and then we'll come back and consider some personal application and theological truths and talk through those in a little bit more detail. But as we dive into the passage before us today, I think it's, we really need to take a little bit of a step back into considering the larger historical context. So we'll start with that. Um, so the story that we're examining today actually marks one of the significant high points of Old Testament history. And so I think it'd be helpful to review those high points of Old Testament. These major points in the Old Testament, if you understand them, 
they actually help to provide a framework for the whole Old Testament. You'll understand, if you understand these things, then you get the big picture of the flow of Old Testament history. So I have here up on the screen, and I know this is going to be hard to see, um, but uh, this is basically a timeline of the Old Testament. And the blue boxes that are up on the top, and again, I know that's small because a lot of stuff to fit, um, but the blue boxes there at the top, those represent really those eight key high points in Old Testament history. So starting with creation, and then we have the flood, and then there's the call of Abram or Abraham there in 2090 BC. And you have the story of the Exodus, and of course all the events that occurred up to the point of the Exodus. Uh, and then with the Exodus, you know that they came out of Israel. They were given the Ten Commandments by the Lord at Horeb. Uh, they uh, went to spy out the land. They came back and gave a bad report, and God judged Israel for their disobedience there, and so they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And then they, with Joshua, went into the promised land, and we, so we have the conquest of Canaan, and then ultimately the apportionment of the different tribal territories of the land um, that was there. And so, and then ultimately in, and then that led to the really, I think the dark ages of Israel's history, which would be the period of the judges. And you see there in the period of judges that Israel was just a complete mess, one thing after another, uh, disobedience rampant and so on. And then you get into the period of the United Kingdom. And that's where Saul comes on the scene that we see there in 1 Samuel, and he assumes the throne. And then from there you have, of course, David and Solomon reigning. And then you get to what we're going to cover today, which is Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who through his foolishness ended up and having the kingdom be divided. But as we will see, yes, that was due to Rehoboam's foolishness, but God had a purpose. He was doing something. He was accomplishing something through it. So that's where we are today. Uh, the two other key high points of Old Testament history is the fall of that northern kingdom in 722 BC and then ultimately the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC to the Babylonians. So those eight things represent the high points of Old Testament history. I'm going to give you one more view here, which this is the kingdom timeline. And uh, by the way, let me go back one, one thing here. So if you look down here at the side, again, I know it's, I know it's tough, but these little purple boxes here represent Old Testament, or the Old Testament books that were written. So you can see there was a long time where there's not actually a lot written, although Genesis covers a huge amount of time. But then here, during this kingdom period, is where most of the Old Testament writings actually took place. So the stories and the things that we're going to do or study serve as the backdrop for all of that prophetic or much of that prophetic writing. So that's helpful to know and understand. Um, so here's the kingdom timeline. This is a little bit more of a zoomed in view of the specific time period that we're going to be covering. 
And so we'll look at the, this again as we move forward. I won't spend too much time here. Um, but the key point there is that today is where we're going to cover that event that led to the United Kingdom being divided into the Northern and Southern Kingdoms. All right, so getting into the passage today, uh, we're going to see first off, and, and we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 12, um, but we're going to look at the first five verses here where we see a conditional coronation offer. So if you'll read with me there in 1 Kings 12 verse 1, it says, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt, where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke hard. Therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. Then he said to them, Depart from Depart for three days and then return to me. So the people departed. So we see first here this coronation event. Now, Rehoboam was almost certainly appointed by Solomon to reign as his successor following his death. However, it was customary there, just as it is today, uh, to have official coronation ceremonies that take place sometimes sometime after. We saw that here recently in Britain with King Charles. So even though he was already king, like a year later, there was this uh, coronation ceremony. And so as we see here in the passage, initially the intention was that all the tribes of Israel were coming to affirm Rehoboam as king. That's where they started. That's where they were going. So Rehoboam traveled to Shechem for this ceremony. Now, here's a question. Why Shechem? Why not Jerusalem? Um, and there's some important reasons for that. Shechem is actually significant. Uh, for starters, it was the location where Joseph's bones were buried when the people came out of Egypt and ultimately to the Promised Land. Uh, possibly more significant, it was also the place where Abram traveled when he was surveying the land that God promised, and God appeared to him there at Shechem, promising again to give him and his descendants that land. So that's significant as well. This is also the location where Jos Joshua excuse me, apportioned out the land to the tribes of Israel. And then beyond all those things, Shechem was also very centrally located. Here I've got a map that you can look at, that red circle there. And again, I know this is a little hard to see, but that red circle is where uh, Shechem was. So again, very centrally located, made it a little bit easier probably for all the tribes to come. Almost the center point of the land of Israel there. So they go there to Shechem uh, with the intended purpose of establishing Rehoboam as king. And then it, the passage here introduces or, or inserts this reality of Jeroboam's return. So following Solomon's attempt to kill him, Jeroboam had fled to Egypt. That was according to, uh, reported in the previous chapter that we covered last week. 
But it seems like the leaders of the other tribes sent for Jeroboam while he was there in Egypt, and then he came up to Shechem for the, con for the coronation. It also appears that he was appointed as some kind of representative for the northern tribes to speak on their behalf. Now, remember that Jeroboam had been appointed at, over the forced labor of, from the northern tribes. So in that role, he had likely uh, formed, formed some alliances and friendships and acquaintances with the tribal leaders of the, the northern tribes. We also know that Jeroboam had rebelled against King Solomon. Now, the reason that's given, and we covered this last week, is kind of interesting, but it, it's told that he rebelled because Solomon built the Milo and repaired a breach in the city wall. Now, the Milo is probably best understood as just part of the marketplace. There, there's some conjecture about what it's actually talking about, but it's uh, likely the marketplace or, or one of those key places in Israel, in, in Jerusalem, that just helped the city to function better. So, now, I, I think as we look at that, it makes sense to understand that Jeroboam and his rebellion and all, he likely had a problem with conscripting forced labor from other tribes in, in Israel to build in Jerusalem. So the leaders of the other tribes knew that and probably understood and respected the fact that Jeroboam was their guy. He was on their side. He had already stood up to Solomon on their behalf. And I think that we can understand that. So if Joe Biden ordered 100,000 young men from Texas to go uh, to build his pet construction projects in Washington, D.C., I don't think we would like that very much. And if anybody stood up to Joe Biden about that, if that were to happen, I think we would appreciate that, right? So Jeroboam standing up to Solomon likely endeared him to the other tribal leaders that were there and made him the natural choice to make this request that they were going to make. And so we see that request there in verse 4, and clearly the request was to lighten the load. So this relates again to the forced labor that Solomon had required, and I think this makes a lot of sense. No one wants to be forced to do manual labor for whatever public works projects are needed in some other state. Keep in mind that when men were away on those projects, that the things that needed to be addressed at home, like farming and local construction projects and other things, couldn't be taken care of. And so their request here was really relax that burden. Relax that requirement for us to come and help out with the forced manual labor in Jerusalem. And if you do that, we will support you as king. So it, it seems a pretty straightforward and reasonable request. And so Rehoboam's answer initially there we see in verse 5 is, seems like a smart response actually. Give me some time to think about it and then come back in three days and I'll give you an answer. Unfortunately, as we will see, Rehoboam chose not to listen to wise counsel. Which brings us to this next section here, beginning in verse 6, where Rehoboam seeks counsel. And initially, he does something smart. He actually goes and 
seeks counsel from Solomon's advisors who advise him to grant the request. So there in verse 6, it says, King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer this people? Then they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant their position and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So Rehoboam sought here to to hear from the men who had served and no doubt learned from Solomon. And I think they provided a very wise response. And there's re- in their response, there is a strong reminder of the primary role of the king, which was to serve the people. And really, the best form of leadership, we could say, is also a servant style of leadership. So another good Another point is that good leaders listen to the people that they lead. In this case, understanding the situation, his counselors saw this as an opportunity to secure the loyalty of all Israel. The grievance and the request that was presented was legitimate and in their minds reasonable. And while they may have understood that there would have been an impact to some of the work, public works projects and such in and around Jerusalem, uh, that those things would have slowed down, they were looking at the fact that having the loyalty of the 10 northern tribes was more important than the local construction projects. And so I think in, in a sense, their, their counsel to him was very, very good. A good servant leader who properly understood his role and responsibility would have recognized that. But Rehoboam chose not to listen. And instead, he goes and talks to his friends, and their counsel is quite different. Basically, they're saying, you know what? You need to show them who's boss. You can't take that from them. So there in verse 8, it says, But he, Rehoboam, forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he said to them, what counsel do you give that we might answer this people who have spoken to me saying, lighten the yoke which your father put upon us. The young men who grew up with him spoke to him saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you saying, your father made our yoke heavy, now make it lighter. Now you make it lighter for us, but you shall speak to them My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, at the outset here, as we look at this, I think I might understand, at least to some degree, the position and concern of the... Well, I definitely understand the position and concern of the northern tribes. However... I can also somewhat understand the perspective of Rehoboam and those from Judah, given the fact that they were probably people who were fiercely loyal to Solomon. So to go along with this, in a sense, would admit that maybe Solomon didn't exactly have everything right. Maybe he, maybe things weren't completely thought through, and that thought was likely reprehensible to them. The other issue is that they probably viewed Jeroboam as a disgusting traitor. And here he was at it again. 
with the other tribes. And so I can understand that tensions were likely high. I can almost see as that request was being, was being made to Rehoboam as the other people that were around him that their faces started to turn a little bit red. Like, how dare that guy come and make this request? We can't tolerate that. So the natural response would have been to bow up and say, no way, we're not doing that. No way will we give in to this. No, Rehoboam, you need to show him who's boss. If you don't nip this in the bud right now, they are going to walk all over you. I think that's sort of the idea. Um, and if that's where they were coming from, and I think likely it was, then uh, I understand to a degree. The way this worked out is that the young men encouraged Rehoboam to say, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Now, I want to address that real quickly. Um, there is a debate among translators regarding to how best to translate this word loins. And so the ESV uses the, ther the term thighs, and the NIV and the NKJV use the term waist, and it's actually translated as waist in, um, in the New American Standard in different passages. So, and I think for a variety, of under, a variety of reasons, that understanding is the best. So I don't really like this uh, word that they used here. It makes it sound like a vulgar statement, but I don't think that's, the, that's what it was. I think they were saying, my little finger is bigger than my father's waist. Um, obviously, the point is clear that they're basically saying, these young men are basically suggesting that Rehoboam needs to double down on his father's policies and make them even more onerous and make the punishments for disobedience even more severe metaphorically using the picture of scorpions instead of whips. Not exactly a good way to win friends and influence people. Unfortunately, as we'll see, Rehoboam listened to his young friends. Now, I, I want to talk about this point a little further later on, so I'll just mention it briefly here, but Rehoboam stands as a striking example of someone who surrounded himself with the wrong kind of counselors, failing to listen to wise counsel, which, according to the book of Proverbs, puts him in the category of a fool. So we'll look at his foolish answer there beginning in verse 12. So it says, Then Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day, as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. So the king answered the people harshly, for he forsook the advice of the elders which they had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of events from the Lord, that he might establish his word, which the Lord spoke through Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So clearly here, Jer Rehoboam excuse me, chose to go the route that his young friends suggested and relayed their words pretty much verbatim to the northern tribes. So, I don't know, think much for yourself, Rehoboam. Why did you have to exactly use their words? 
But with this statement, he made it abundantly clear that he was refusing their request, and his reply even indicated that he was insulted by their request and offended that they would even suggest it. Sort of a, how dare you even suggest that to me? Um, but I think what's clear here is that it's based on his own sinful motivations and thinking patterns that he made the choice to rebuff their request. But there's a key point that's made in verse 15. And what we see in verse 15 is this convergence of human decisions and actions with God's sovereign plans at work. So on the one hand, Rehoboam made up his own mind to do what he wanted to do, and he is fully accountable before God for the decisions that he made. But we also see the Lord at work in the situation to bring about exactly what he planned to do and purposed and promised. And so I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that a little bit later as well as we discuss some of the theological implications of this passage. But it's a very interesting point that's made here as we see that sort of melding, that interplay between God's plans and human actions and decisions. So, of course, as we would expect, uh, his answer didn't go over very well. And so it actually led to, effectively, a declaration of independence from the northern tribes. So there in verse 16, it says, When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tent, so Israel. Now you look after your own house, David. So Israel departed to their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So here we see that Israel breaks with Judah. Obviously, Rehoboam was expecting a different response compared to what he received. And what we have here in verse 16 is what appears to be a formal declaration in poetic form of Israel's break with Judah. Now it's kind of interesting. Why did they why did they make it into a poem? Now maybe they were quoting something that they knew at a time, but I think likely they were actually making it a formal statement and a formal declaration that was in a sense becoming their national anthem, so to speak. Um, so it's kind of interesting that that's done in poetic form, but I think it just underscores the fact that they were done. This was a formal declaration of independence. They're, they said there, what portion do we have in David? And we have no inheritance with the sons of Judah. So it's, it's pretty clear that they were cutting any relational ties with Judah, essentially stating that they no longer had any shared inheritance with Judah. Basically, they were saying, okay, you're on your own, to your own tents, which that concept of to your tents 
it indicates that they were done with discussions and diplomacy, and it was time for them to look after their own interests. Discussions were over, and they suggested that Rehoboam and the tribe of David do the same. Stop talking to us. Go away. Go to your tents. So another point here, though, is that the break with Judah was technically not a total break. There were some people from the northern tribes who determined that they would stay and live in Judah and serve Rehoboam. And we see that there in, in verse 17, I believe. Yeah, verse 17. Uh, but there's another passage as well in Second Chronicles. This is the parallel passage there. And Second Chronicles spells it out a little bit more clearly. Actually, this isn't entirely a parallel passage. This, is a, this occurs a little bit later, but uh, bringing the point here, it says, those from all the tribes of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported, supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years for they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So, again, there was this group of people from the northern tribes that said, you know what, we are going to serve the Lord. And so they actually left. They left their tribal territories and their families and all of that and moved down to, uh, moved down to the southern kingdom. So I think it's those that remain true to the Lord, they sacrificed much to remain true to him. And so there's some lessons that are there. And we'll also talk about the tribe of Benjamin, who remained largely true to Judah as well. We'll get to that here in a second. So the next part that we see here is Jeroboam installed as king over Israel. So there, verse 20, it says, It came about when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, that they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. None but the tribe of Judah followed the house of David. So here we're told that Jeroboam was made king by the northern tribes of Israel. And I'm not going to spend much time on that because Cam is going to cover that for us next week and take a much deeper look at Jeroboam becoming king. Uh, but I do want to address real quickly the statement that none but the tribes of Judah followed the house of David. Now we already mentioned that there were some exceptions to that. And this is not an inconsistency. This is a reference to the official assembly where the northern tribes, tribes appointed Jeroboam as king. In that official assembly, the leadership of all the 11 northern tribes, including Benjamin, voted to install Jeroboam. As things unfolded, we'll see that at least a significant portion of Benjamin didn't go along with their leaders, apparently, and they remained true to Judah. So the next section here is Rehoboam's initial reaction and obedience. <clears throat> so there in verse 21, it says, Now when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the, son of God, the man of God, saying, 
Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You must not go up and fight against your relatives, the sons of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this king has come from, or this thing, excuse me, has come from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and returned there and went their way according to the word of the Lord. So we see here that uh, Rehoboam initially raised this army. Now, this is a pretty big army that he was able to muster up pretty quickly. And one of the things here is that it included people from the tribe of Benjamin. So that group of people not only decided to remain true to Rehoboam, but they chose to fight along with him. Uh, so it's interesting. That happened quickly. There's, as we look into it, there were a few cities in the far north part of Benjamin's territory which were considered part of the northern kingdom, but the tribe of Benjamin largely aligned itself with Judah. So there's several places where we'll see Judah and Benjamin listed together as comprising that southern kingdom. So Understandably, we see here, Rehoboam decides to go to war. It's kind of like what Abraham Lincoln decided when the southern states uh, broke with the Union. Um, he began to raise an army to disallow that from happening. Um, and so that's where Rehoboam's mind was initially, but God here intervened. Uh, and he intervened to keep the army from going to war. And so... Clearly, the Lord here expressly forbade Rehoboam and the people from going to war against the northern tribes. And the reason that God gave is that the events that had occurred with the northern kingdom was his plan. It was what he purposed to do, and it's what he brought about and accomplished. As Isaiah 14, 27 states, for the word, or sorry, for the Lord of hosts, has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? It's not possible when God has determined to accomplish something, there is nothing that any man can do about it. God intervened here to preclude a war, I think was an expression of his grace to both Israel and to Judah. What difference would that more war have made? Nothing. None. God had already determined what would happen. His plan was accomplished and would not be undone. Now, I mentioned earlier about that interplay between human decisions and God's sovereign plans worked out, being worked out. And here in this passage, God again confirmed that reality. To, and then to Rehoboam's credit here, despite his previously unwise actions, he chose to listen to the Lord and the men of the army were sent home. So there's some lessons and things that we can learn from this that I want to consider as we go through that. And I want to start first with some personal application. So looking at this initially, I can't help but see that Rehoboam was Solomon's son. So immediately I'm thinking from a parenting perspective. So there's a number of things that I think this teaches us and, and instructs us as it relates to parenting children. 
So I want to start thinking through just a few things relating to parents. Number one, recognize that your failures can be a greater influence in the lives of your children than your teaching. Think about that. Um, there were parts of Proverbs that were actually written and specifically addressed to Rehoboam. He had a front row seat to hear Solomon preach the sermon of Ecclesiastes, probably. I can't imagine that Rehoboam wasn't there for that sermon. He likely had the opportunity to hear it explained, and yet I can't help but think of the enormous impact that Solomon's sins must have had on Rehoboam. So we'll see as things progress that Rehoboam remains true to the Lord for a the first few years of his reign, and then he goes down the path that Solomon went down, ultimately. And here we have the wisest man who ever lives, and the first act of his son is a really dumb one. Um, the, and the question is, how? How does that happen? And I think this, to me, it, it's a resounding reality that Solomon's sins had an impact upon his children. So we need to understand that. At the same time, we can't ever stop teaching. And I don't know that Solomon did ever stop teaching. He continued, I'm sure, to teach and to challenge uh, his son. We can't use our failures and, uh, as an excuse not to teach. We can't say, uh, well, I'm just going to mess things up, so therefore I'm not going to teach the gospel and the truth. That's not okay. We are commanded to instruct our children. Another one we need to understand, and I think this illustrates the fact that our children are born with sinful hearts. Uh, our children have a massive problem. As cute and precious as they may be, their hearts are completely sinful. So don't be surprised when, all of your when despite all of your efforts, you discover that there is darkness in their hearts, just like there is in yours. And they are in desperate need of the truth of the gospel. So the gospel in word and the gospel in action must be present in your home and prominent in your home. We also need to understand that only God can change our children's hearts. Uh, you have a critical role to play in their lives, uh, but you lack the ability to change them on your own. They are in need of a heart transplant which can only be accomplished by a great healer. And then another one that I would just encourage you here is be committed to equipping your children how to deal with their sinful hearts properly and biblically and practically. When they are faced with the difficulties and challenges of life and, and the realities that their heart is sinful, we need to be careful to be equipping them how to think, how to address it, how to work through those things appropriately. This means that we need to teach them about what repentance really means. That it's not just being sorry, but that it represents a decision, a firm decision that you are not going to go down that path any longer with the Lord's help. It means that we need to teach them about exercising the spiritual disciplines, reading and studying the scriptures, praying, serving, fellowship, and all the rest. It needs to be an important part of what we do. Secondly, 
we need to recognize that you will be influenced by those you surround yourself with. So you should be choosing to surround yourself when possible by those who love the Lord. There's so many passages that convey this reality. Um, we see this here in this passage where Rehoboam chose to listen to his young, dumb friends rather than listening to his wise counselors. It's like what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. Or Proverbs 13, 30, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's Rehoboam. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. By the way, recognize that we are influenced in our day and age digitally as well as in person. So the question is, what are you filling your mind with? Pay attention to those things that are, that are influencing you. Another one for parents, recognize that your children are being influenced by the things in the world, both in person and digitally. Invade their privacy. You should. Uh, pay attention. Don't let them use computers and tablets and things like that without supervision. This, by the way, is one of the primary reasons we chose to homeschool, because it just gives us a little bit better way to prevent them from being overtly influenced by others. Of course, then again, they have their own sinful hearts, so we're trying to fight things from both directions. Um, but that's, that's part of the decisions that we made. That's not the only right way to go, um, but that's what we chose to do. But it's important to recognize the influence. We need to be in teaching our kids about having the right kinds of friends, about filling their minds with the right kinds of things, like... Uh, Paul talks about that whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is worthy, and so on. Those are the things that we need to fill our minds with and teach our children. This passage also underscores the need to seek and to value wise counsel. Proverbs 12:15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And another thing that comes out is for those of you in leadership, recognize the importance of servant leadership. Look at what Solomon's advisors were calling Rehoboam to do. And I, I think there's great, that's a very important thing there. All right, some theological truths that are here that come out, um, and I won't spend too much time on these, but... God is faithful to his word and promises. What God says, he will perform. So in this passage, as God was executing judgment, just as he outlined in giving Jeroboam the ten northern tribes, he was also demonstrating his faithfulness to the promises that he made both to David and to Solomon by allowing Rehoboam to remain as Judah's king. So another one here that we sort of talked about already, but people are fully accountable for their decisions and actions. But God is sovereignly at work, sovereignly at work in and through those actions to perfectly bring about his plans. I mentioned earlier in this passage that we see that 
convergence where between human decisions and God's sovereign plans at work, and by the way, convergence is the theological term that's used uh, by theologians to describe that interplay. Um, but, and there's several places in scripture where we see this reality depicted. One is with Pharaoh, that there are passage that's, passages that say that God ha- hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then there's others that say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, who is doing what? Maybe we don't know. We don't understand all of that very well. I think that's above our pay grade. But the reality is that both are true. People make and are culpable for their own decisions uh, before God. But we also understand that God is sovereignly at work. And there's many other passages that we could look at. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which summarizes our responsibility and sanctification, and then says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, which outlines God's side of the equation. The point and encouragement for us is that we can fully and completely rest in the sovereign control of God over the affairs of humanity. This may be tough to grasp, and there's a sense in which it makes us sick to understand that some of our leaders are placed there by God, and that he has plans and purposes working in and through them. Even their sinful decisions are not outside of his control. And even those, somehow, again, beyond our pay grade to understand completely, but they all fit together perfectly to accomplish his plans and purposes and bring him ultimate glory. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we just thank you for this passage. We thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you that you have given us these things to instruct us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and cause us to think carefully. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do exactly that. Help us to take these truths and the things that we discuss to heart, and we pray that you would help us to change as a result. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the fact that you are sovereignly in control of all things and that we can completely and wholly trust that what you have designed, what you have decided, you will accomplish. And there is none that can stay your hand or thwart your designs. And so we thank you for that great comforting reality. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.